Okay then, while we're getting uh, finally settled, um, what I want to talk about tonight really is a bit of a follow-on from uh, from the couple of weeks that we did before our discussion uh, um, last week on uh, the whole issue of um, where does Jesus fit. So I am going to do a couple of scriptures tonight, but um, you know, want to relate to you what I think is a a very interesting concept um, out of that whole thing. So I want to read some pretty classic verses, really, from Matthew 16, uh, from verse 13. It'll be on the screen, so you're fine. And uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll take the conversation from there. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, I'm not going to deal with all of this um, portion, but um, I wanted to read a few verses either side just to give it some, some context. I think the issue is that answering, answering the question, where does Jesus fit? can become merely an exercise in, in philosophical and historical consideration. You know, was he a real person, was he not a real person, you know, etc., etc. Um, and that is if the question is not wrestled with from the perspective of who am I to you. So it really, to some degree, doesn't matter what Chris or I say about the historical context of Jesus and how we've arrived at certain things. At the end of the day, really, the only thing that really matters is the question, who am I to you? Now, I think it's an important question because um, Jesus has had the single most influence upon um, society and the development of society in the last 2,000 years. <clears throat> so whatever's going on, something's going on. Now, I know some could argue and say, you know, what about the impact of Muhammad on the, on the Eastern world and the, what is now the Muslim world um, since 700, you know. Uh, yeah, it's a fair question. I don't mind those questions. Um, but what supersedes it all is the influence on the development of society. And of course... The problem with that is come many evils, which again, um, when we are in the position we are as a church and as a people with such an openness and a freedom, um, we actually do consider things like the uh, Crusades and the Spanish Inquisition and all the horrors and atrocities that have been perpetrated in supposedly in the name of Christ um, and for the kingdom of God. So I'm, I'm also fully aware of, of that nonsense, but But the nonsense doesn't undermine the question as to why this guy had such an influence and to what would drive these young men and women from a three-year encounter with this persona called Jesus to 
to do what they had done and for many of them to actually be willing to die for the cause. You know, you, you, you don't die for a cause that, that is just made up in your head. You have to have some really solid reason for, for believing this is worth dying for. So I, I propose to you whatever happened, and, and, and the truth is we can't really know. You know, we, we, history doesn't permit us enough record to say this specifically happened because, um, you know, the Gospels themselves are, are a good record of some of the things about Jesus, but they are in many ways a standalone record. And I know that people like Josephus and uh, various others, you know, Tacitus, uh, the Roman historian, mention things that we would associate and relate to Jesus. But at the end of the day, a lot of this is, um, is what was passed on through the group to the group, which was not as unusual as you might think because we were still in the days where uh, oral tradition and the passing on of stories was, you know, people didn't write, people couldn't write, only scribes could write or uh, intellectuals. So it wasn't like you or I or Jenny or whatever would just, oh, we'll just make a note of all this stuff because, you know, basically we couldn't write. So um, we find ourselves in a, in a situation where, where we, don't, we can't say, even in essence, because the Bible says, although we can qualify and quantify the Bible and the people who wrote the Bible are Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And then, of course, Luke, Luke uh, I probably trust Luke more than, well, I trust John most of all because we've got later writings of John, which and, and where John comes from, I find very inspiring. Uh, among the other three, I find Luke potentially to be the one I would trust the most, because he's not a Jew. He has no dog in the fight in the sense of, uh, I have to protect some Jewish culture or some Jewish religion here. Um, you know, Luke, Luke is compiling information probably from where Matthew and Mark got their information, but also from other people as well. And so Luke is trying to give a, he's trying to just gather stuff like you would. I want to put something down about this. So he's gathering stuff from many different places. And of course, he, was, he also uh, put together the book of Acts. So uh, he was a sharp guy who's no, nobody's fool. Um, but what I'm trying to say to you is that in terms of, you know, we don't have photographs and film footage and newsreel. Uh, to verify this, so we are, we are, we are pulling together strings that then we ultimately have to decide: Did something incredible happen to to cause this process? Was there something that was was ridiculously true? Because remember, Jesus was not the first nor the last Messiah to turn up in Israel's history. But something ridiculously true happened that took it beyond the borders of Israel and spread it across the known world. And, um, you know, like I say, if you take away the nonsense, you would still have to say, pretty remarkable and pretty amazing. So, so for those reasons alone, we could say something was going on. And, uh, and I think that something for us comes down to the same something that it came down to for these guys you know, well, who are people saying that I am? And really, they, they, they were doing the same thing that we often do. Well, Jesus was a good man. You know, I believe that Jesus was a moral leader. I believe blah, blah, blah. All of those things were there. Uh, but then, of course, what I'm basing this on, that classic question, but who am I to you? You know, stop relying on 
these people say and everybody else. At the end of the day, you have to make a decision on this important figure in history as to not just did he exist, but who is he to you and who is this person? And that really is what this, um, this little compilation of verses um, is about. Now, I don't like this, but I know that it's true that life is always telling us something. The reason I don't like that is because a lot of the time I don't like what it is that life's telling me and I wish it had just shut up and keep itself to itself. But life is always telling us something. Uh, in, in the good times and the bad times, the difficulties, the challenges, the contradictions, uh, the paradoxes, you know, the, the blessings. Life is always telling us something. And, and one of the big secrets we have to learn, and, and, and I know after 62 years and some of these guys have got a few more, uh, we don't always learn that lesson too well, but life is always, it's always telling us something. Now, I think one of the secrets to being whole, again, uh, I wish I could proclaim myself to be an expert on this, but I am very much not, is figuring out what is it that life is telling me. Uh, because I don't think life, in one sense, wastes its breath or wastes an opportunity to tell us something that has meaning and significance for who we are as people and how we construct our lives and, and then how we interact with our world and, and how we then invest in our world from the experiences that we've had. But in light of that, our concepts of God must be examined beyond the light of our major influences and adjusted as necessary. Now, I, I come from, as, as most of you know, um, uh, a whole lifetime spent in church and around church and around ministry and around Bible and around, quote, the gospel and Christianity. And, um, and within that, I have had to come to a place where my own concepts of God are examined beyond the light of the major influences in my life and adjusted as necessary. My, 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 one of my great problems with Christianity is an institution, and by that I don't mean, you know, Church of England, Roman Catholic. I mean, I mean every brand of Christianity that institutionalizes its thinking and some of what we would call fiercely evangelical or fiercely charismatic or fiercely Pentecostal matters not. There is this inefficiency of being able to examine the concepts of God beyond the light of our major influences. And, and so we don't make the adjustments that are necessary and, and the story doesn't go on to unfold to be what it is. Now, I'm very grateful for you guys and I'm very grateful for this place and some people are not as grateful about this place or as grateful about us because what we've done is we have looked at concepts of God and examined those concepts beyond the light of our major influences. A lot of people don't want to be troubled with that but we have chosen that we wish to be troubled with that and also then to make adjustments as necessary. <clears throat> so, so that kind of leads us into what I want to say about this little part of, of, of the Bible that we read. Um, in verse 13 of, of what we read, uh, Jesus declares himself, this is interesting, to be the Son of Man. So the starting premise is not pressure from on high to make you have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's almost like Jesus diffuses the situation and removes religious pressure 
by calling himself the Son of Man. And basically says, you've seen me, you've observed me as a Son of Man, so who are people saying that I am and and who do you say that I am without, without any attempt to manipulate the outcome of the question. Now again, one of my major concerns about institutionalized Christianity is that there is a manipulation within the question to make you give the answer that the manipulator needs you to give. And so it never allows us to reevaluate um, our concepts of God except within the script that we have been given. And uh, what I love about Jesus is Jesus in the context of religion goes off script all the time. He's going off script. And, uh, you know, even in things like he said, it has been said, but I say unto you, is basically Jesus conflicting with what had become the religious ideal and the religious model and the religious construct of the time, the accepted understandings of God, and saying, I'm saying something different to that. So, so we have here a no pressure. The, the, the pressure of the question is not to make you give the answer that Jesus would like you to give. And of course, one of the problems with that is you can finish up with all kinds of answers that I'm not always pleased with, but hopefully we've moved away from the, we've moved away from the manipulating the answer by the way that one either asks the question or what one puts into the question, that you can answer this question how you wish, but just remember, if you get it wrong, you'll be damned, you know. That's, that's pushing you to a question. If you get this question wrong, you will not have the blessing of God. If you get this question wrong, uh, you'll be under a curse. And so I know preachers can manipulate the answer to get you to give the answers that they want, but Jesus doesn't. And that's what I like about, to me, this says authentic. This guy has come from God. He is the word of God made flesh, but he's not manipulating the situation. He's saying, I want you, in the light of your understanding, your view, your thinking, to come to a conclusion and hopefully that conclusion will be the one that I think will be the greatest blessing to you. So he says, he says, um, he says in that verse 13, um, uh, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Now we could say a lot about that son of man thing because it was a phrase Jesus used all the time about himself. But that's for another time. So, um, So here we are then, verse 13, Jesus declares himself to be the Son of Man, but in verse 16, Simon Peter declares him to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Jesus said, who do you think I, the Son of Man, am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I find it interesting that Jesus is letting Peter decide for himself whether the Son of Man is actually more than just the Son of Man. Which Peter actually does in his response, but I think with one interesting feature. And the feature is this, that there are three significant elements in Peter's response. And these are the three significant elements. You are the Christ. So he has come to the conclusion that whoever this person is, he is not a Christ. He is not a Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the anointed. He is the one. A bit like Neo in the Matrix. He is the one. So somehow in Peter, he has concluded, you are 
the Christ, the anointed one, the sent one. The second thing he does is he recognizes God as a father. Because he says, you are the Christ, the son of. The moment you use the terminology son of, you have brought into the equation the understanding of fatherhood, hopefully good fatherhood, but the whole issue of fatherhood has now come in. Now, this is very important for a Jew. Because to call God father for a Jew was blasphemy. That's why Jesus kept calling himself the son, of God, the son of man, but kept calling God Father because he knew that would get under the skin of the religious people because they had this God who was separate rather than this Father who was one. Remember, Jesus didn't say, I'm here and my Father's there. He said, I and the Father are one. To see me is to see the Father. In other words, he's saying there is no separation between me and the Father, unlike how religion immediately creates a separation because you didn't need all the feasts of Israel and all the sacrifices if you were not separated from God. But those feasts happening year after year was declaring we are separate from God. Jesus begged to differ on that point. And so Peter had picked that up. You are the Christ, God as a Father... A son of, and then another interesting thing, he says, you are, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, this is interesting because um, son of God was not an unfamiliar uh, statement in, in history around that time. And, and even going further back into Egyptian history, etc. And it became reasonably common in in Roman history, particularly since, since Gaius Julius Caesar, um, where the idea was that the emperor is, is God. So, you know, the son of the emperor could be called the son of God. So there were various terms that flew around. One of them was son of the divine, not specifically son of God, but son of the divine. And um, uh, son, son of heaven was another one that would, would fly around. Uh, and son of God. So, so that title itself was not per se an unheard of phenomenon because it was already common in, in Roman society with, with the Caesars. Which is why Peter didn't say son of God. He said son of the living God because in doing that he was making a distinction that the divine that he was talking about was the living entity which tied in with the word made flesh and living amongst us. So he is making a distinction. You are the Christ and you are the son of the living God, okay? So there was something about this that, that again, was associating the God who we're talking about is alive. The God who we're talking about is a father. The God who we're talking about is different. And the God who we're talking about has become flesh in the Christ, the anointed that God flows into, so what's going on here is not a consideration about a religion to be followed, but it's about a person to be recognised. Now this again was a difference because the whole pressure and the weight of Judaism was a religion to be followed. The whole pressure and weight, I'm sad to say, of the majority of Christianity is a religion to be followed rather than a person to be recognised. And the sad thing is that Jesus, in essence although it's very important within Christian belief and doctrine, 
is actually a parenthesis, a subtext to the story. Now, I'll tell you how, how I know that, because even in the context of evangelical Christianity, people will talk to you more about the words of Paul and what Paul said than they ever will about Jesus and what Jesus did. So Jesus becomes subservient to Paul's teaching rather than Paul becoming subservient to Jesus' teaching. And so Paul, who doesn't have the fullness of revelation, is teaching us over and ahead of the one who has the fullness of revelation because he is the word made flesh. And that's where then we become to be idolaters. And our idol becomes something called the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. And we have become idolaters. Because we have exalted the book above the person. Now, we would all say, and I said for years, no, but it's just because it's actually all about the person. And of course, there's even songs, it's all about you, Jesus. My problem is that it isn't. It's still all about ways and methods and systems and, 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 and structures, etc., etc., etc. Because when it's all about Jesus, this thing becomes really difficult to organize and control. Because Jesus didn't come to organize and control anything. He came to bring life in the hope that that life would draw us into relationship with the life and that life would be our light and that everything that we did is because we had the same light and we followed the same life and therefore that drew us together. Not even a creed, not even a doctrine, but the, the connection to the light and life, which is Jesus himself and how that then begins to emerge as the, as the word of God, the breathed word of God, which we are still part of, incidentally. You know, people will tell you, I was, I was with Aliens, um, Dad, this last week, and that Bruce is a retired minister. We were talking about the fact of how people say, even about the Bible, that, well, you know, um, it, it says that all scripture is God-breathed. So therefore, you know, the, but actually in, in the Greek... Um, it, says, it, says, it says it the other way around. It says all God-breathed scripture is. Right? Not all scripture is God-breathed. All God-breathed scripture is. Therefore, within the Bible, everything that was God-breathed, scripture is. Everything that wasn't, scripture isn't. But we have it in our Bible, but not everything was God-breathed. God didn't breathe out that if you're upset, and you take your enemies, you can smash their little ones against the stone. God didn't breathe that out. I don't believe God breathed out. Kill them all. Every man, woman, children, every animal, every beast. And take their women as slaves, etc., etc. I don't believe that was God breathed. I think it's written. And I think it helps us understand culturally what was going on. But God breathed it is not. So I do believe that all scripture God breathed is. Now the question will be, where is God breathed? Well, I propose to you. If through the lens of Jesus it makes sense, then that scripture God breathed is. If it doesn't, for example, if Jesus said love your enemies and we see God destroying his enemies, we got a problem. We got a big problem. Somebody is writing this up wrong. So we can have confidence to know that all scripture God breathed is 
or God-breathed all Scripture is, everything that's God-breathed. So here, in this whole process, it's not about the religion to be followed, but a person to be recognised. It's, it's not God as a religion, but God as a person. Now, the problem is we've fallen into the trap of making God a religion rather than God a person. Jesus came if he was real and if he was who he said he was so that we might see the Father in human flesh, right? That was his purpose. So that we, again, would not idolise something that actually doesn't look like Jesus. So, it, uh, that's verse 17 says, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The interesting question on this would be, what has, does, and would flesh and blood reveal to you? That's the thing here. What has, what would, and what does flesh and blood reveal to you? Because Jesus is making the point that we have a problem here because flesh and blood say something to us, but flesh and blood can't say to us what it is that we need to hear in order to understand what it is that we have to know. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The only thing that flesh and blood can truly reveal to you is a pagan concept of God. Because that's all flesh and blood will do. It's the only measurement you've got. Your flesh and blood can only grasp the idea of the gods are angry, the gods must be appeased, you'll be rewarded for doing good, you'll be punished for doing bad, that the object of all belief is obedience and worship, which I've said to you before makes zero sense in the context of love. God is not trying to get you in his family or show you that you are in his family so you can worship him or so you can obey him. I've given you my classic illustration on that. If when Chris and I were about to be married, I said, I love you, will you marry me? And he said, why do you want me to marry you? And I said, in order that you might worship me. Ain't gonna happen. I want you to marry me. Why do you want me to marry you? I want you to marry me so that you can obey me. It's not gonna happen. But we've got this construct of God that says worship and obedience are at the core of following him and loving him when actually, no, it's not because love doesn't demand worship. Love doesn't demand obedience. Love gives, love gives freedom. Now, if you want to worship the one you love, if you want to obey the one you love, you do it as a matter of choice, not as a course of expectation. So the sad thing is, we've got churches across the world preaching to people, you've got to worship, you've got to obey, you've got to worship, you've got to obey. If you do, basically God will be pleased with you. That's a pagan concept. Because flesh and blood can only get you as far as seeing God through the eyes of a pagan concept. And sadly... All our, all our ideas of, of things we've talked about, like penal substitutionary atonement and, uh, and, and um, uh, ransom and all of those theories we've talked about, all ultimately, sadly, I'm not saying they didn't come through good men who genuinely love God, but sadly they are based on the model of what flesh and blood reveals to you. And flesh and blood says, oh, God must be a judge if the judge is offended. 
then the judge must judge us. And if he's judging us, then we must be sentenced. And if we're sentenced, there must be a punishment. But we don't want God to kill us. I know what happens. Jesus will be our stand-in for the condemnation that is coming on us for the death sentence. Now, you know, it's a wonderful way of explaining. It's a wonderful story. I loved it because it was so simple to explain. But then I thought, even in a human court of law, when could you, if someone has been found guilty of a crime and the penalty is death, when could anybody say, I'll stand in for them and die? The judge is going to say, you can't stand in for this person because they've got to be punished for what they've done. So there are, there are lots of flaws that come in there. Why do those flaws come? Because flesh and blood can only reveal to you a pagan concept of God. Flesh and blood can only ever deal with us on the level of flesh and blood. Flesh and blood sees the gods and creates gods or dismisses gods according to how flesh and blood thinks. And that's why we've got 30,000 plus denominations. That's why we've got 30,000 plus religions. That's why Hindus have 30,000 plus gods. Because flesh and blood can try its best, but it cannot reveal to you what it is that you truly need to know about the divine. So the question is, do people tend to believe in the God or the gods offered them by their culture? You know, because you get the thing, if I was born in a Muslim country, you know, if I was born in a Hindu country, if I was born in a Buddhist country, well, guess what? You were born in this country... And the answer is, yes, we tend to believe in the gods offered by our culture. And we have. We have done that. We've believed that. And we've believed the God that's been presented to us in our culture, that's been revealed by flesh and blood, which is the God that we don't like. It's the God of Christianity tends to be portrayed in the main as a loving persona, but whose actual behaviour is according to the patterns of pagan belief. Angry, separate, vengeful, requiring appeasement, rewarding and punishing according to good and bad, tribalistic, empirical, controlling, enslaving, demanding, with subjugation, worship and obedience as the prerequisite to forgiveness and acceptance. I mean, reading the book this week's irritating me. Chris knows because she gets the brunt of my irritation as I'm reading this book on a morning, uh, because it's trying to explain things we've talked about, which is covenant and blood and covenant. And all the time, it will not let go of the law. It will not get go of this God that I have just described. It will not let go of subjugation and worship and obedience as the prerequisite to forgiveness and acceptance. If you do this, God will do that. If you respond in the right way, God will forgive you. And as we've said to you, Anybody with half a brain now, which obviously we never thought, which is why I often quoted the scripture from Romans 12, uh, 3, that be transformed by the renewing of your mind, not the removing of your mind, that sadly we had our minds removed because even what I've said to you about the nonsensical situation that says, if you do this, God will forgive you. Well, that's not forgiveness. That's retribution. You cannot, when you've paid your mortgage, you cannot be forgiven by the bank. 
You can be forgiven by the bank before you've paid your mortgage and that would be a different matter and a wonderful day. Well, the truth is we have been forgiven without paying the mortgage. What's that? Flesh and blood won't reveal that to you. See? So if flesh and blood is determining even our understanding of Scripture, we all the time, we retreat back into images of of, uh, influenced by what pagan gods were like and then we superimpose them on this thing and we call it Christianity but then within there we begin to follow the thing rather than the man. So the trouble is, the, the point is those who are troubled by this persona of the God I've described and and, and, and many of you are, I think all of us are maybe to some degree, some of us much more disturbed about that persona than others, uh, see Jesus as part of the scheme and that's the problem. So, of course, we come up with the good cop, bad cop thing. You know, God's the bad cop, Jesus is the good cop. God is judging us and condemning us, but Jesus is the good cop who says it's all going to be okay, don't worry, I'll have a word with the judge. So we come with this good cop, bad cop scenario, uh, almost like, you know, God is schizophrenic. You know, he desperately wants to kill us and desperately wants to save us at the same time and he can't can't make his mind up what to do. So he has to split his personality so that part of him can save us while part of him condemns us and judges us and sends us to hell. So it's like that's called schizophrenia. You'd be in hospital for that now. You'd be being treated for mental health. But I've come to see that, you know, if, if I believe the persona that I have been delivered and here so many times, then this persona has mental health issues. Seriously, I don't mean that derogatory. I mean, I take very seriously mental health issues. But seriously, you would have to say these are mental health issues. It's a split personality. And he doesn't really know who he wants to be and he's trying to be all kinds of things when, when really, no, he is, he is one thing and that one thing is, in essence, is love and that love is manifested to us through a real understanding of Jesus but not the Jesus if you're just seeing a son of man, prophet, this, this and this but by the revelation that Peter had, you start to think, now hang on a minute, both Jesus and God here I see very differently. So for those who are troubled by this persona that we've talked about, the problem is that there can be a tendency to want to leave Jesus behind in the search for greater meaning. So, so for some of you might struggle a bit with this. We don't know how to take Jesus along with us in this belief because we only see him through that image that we had. And so we actually see Jesus not as a help now, but as a problem because because we don't quite know where to put him. And if he is not, if he's not being used as a, a ritual child sacrifice for our sins, then, then, then what's the point? So, so the problem is instead of wrestling with that, we say, so we just leave Jesus behind. I don't get Jesus. Well, well the truth is, Jesus' point was, you need to get me, because when you get me, Something miraculous happens on the inside. But you need to get me. I'm not going to push you to get me. I'm not going to manipulate your answers or your thoughts to get me. But I'm going to be me. And if you do get me, you'll get the blessed are you because. So, so I don't want to leave Jesus behind. But it has been a struggle for me. Detaching him from those old models 
that seemed okay, but actually when you look at them in much more detail and examine them in the light of reality and true righteousness and true integrity have some huge problems. And again, I don't want to get into talking about how, you know, Calvin, a lawyer, introduced legal forensic thinking into Bible and all that stuff. But, you know, you've been with us on that journey. So, so we don't need to leave Jesus behind, right? But we don't need to take the Jesus who's constructed by flesh and blood. So you are allowed to leave the Jesus who in your mind is constructed by flesh and blood, okay? So, so he said, um, let me see. Um, uh, so hence the wise words then of Jesus that flesh and blood cannot and will not, will not reveal to you who Jesus truly is. Therefore, verse 17 holds tremendously important keys to understanding who Jesus is because he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, question, what is meant by revealed? And by revelation, what do we mean? What did Jesus mean? Well, things that require a revelation are those things that are not immediately obvious, yet profoundly influential when seen. A revelation is something that happens when something that was previously covered or not readily visible becomes visible. So it's like if Chris was in here today and I had a black sheet over her, when I removed the black sheet, you would have a revelation. You would see something that you could not see until the sheet was removed, right? So when Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven, he's suggesting that for all of us who are serious about the question, who is Jesus to you, have to understand that we need a sheet taking off. Yeah. So, there's this amazing verse in, um, in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 14, which, you know, won't mess with the, the rest of the chapter, but it says, but their minds were made dull. It's talking about old covenant law, religious, stuck in a rock people. Their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. So he is, he is saying that, that unless we get free from our old thinking about who God is and therefore who the Christ is and what the Christ is to us, it's like we have a veil over our heads so we can't see, we can't see what it is that we need to see that would have such a dramatic impact upon us if we did see it. The veil of their own history and cultural concepts presented them from seeing a Christ other than the one that fulfilled their own construct and expectations. The problem is that if you still got the veil on, you see Christ only as a construct of your own expectations. So we actually begin to make Christ in the image that we need him to be. 
And then we can't get rid of that in order to potentially see who he really was. Okay, Some say you're the prophet, some say you're Isaiah, some say you're Jeremiah. You see, that was the construct because they were looking for a Messiah but couldn't believe the Messiah they encountered could possibly be the Messiah that they were looking for. And, um, you know, I would have to say again, this is, this is critical of the, the Christian world because I've been in it all of my life, so I, I kind of have enough mileage to be able to do it, and hopefully we're breaking free. You want to ask the question, will the real Jesus please stand up? Because, because the saviour that we have constructed is in order to verify the concepts that we have developed that somehow make us right with God when we were never wrong with God. And they all come from the image which we have taught you before, all come from the perspective of changing how God sees me rather than changing how I see God. So we create a Jesus who changes how God sees us rather than receiving a Jesus who shows us that God never saw us any differently to the day that we were made. We were in Christ before we were in Adam. It says you were in him from before the foundation of the world. That our root, our connection, our life, in him we live and move and have our being, right? That all of creation functions because of the presence, the very present presence of God that's never been taken away from us. So it's got this thing about, about the, the veil. And we're, we're trying not to fall into the same trap. Uh, just one other little verse in there before I come to the last little bit. I, I, I love the allegorical application of Hebrews 9 verse 8. You understand what allegory is, don't you? Allegory is when you use words and they make a picture that you put with the words that are they're, they're, they're a, a story that's actually about something more than the story, Okay. It's saying more than it looks as though it's saying. That's, a, that's an allegory. So, so, you know, people are described as, as representing things. Now, without getting into all of that, Hebrews 9 verse 8, and this is one of my favourite um, verses of application on this subject. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. Now this is in the book of Hebrews, which is primarily written to Hebrews, who understand Hebrew culture, the sacrifices, the, the law, and all that stuff. And he makes a very interesting point, because he said, at, at the center of all that construct was the tabernacle, and the center of the tabernacle was the most holy place, and nobody was getting in the holy place. You couldn't get in, you had to be killed if you went anywhere near it. Only the high priest once a year went in. Now, this was not a message of, isn't it wonderful? This was a message of, isn't it terrible if you get your understanding of God moved into the forensic and the legalistic? Because here's what happens. It will always separate you and never join you. So this is a picture of that. And he says, right at the center of this religious system, this, this, this construct of God... He says is the most holy place, and yet it says the way into the most holy place in the context of, of being at one with God and understanding that we are priests and we are enough and we are not condemned and we are pure 
and we are holy and we are righteous and we are good, he said, you can't get there as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. So he says, unless you pull down all those ideas that you had that were constructed to become religion around truth, you cannot enter in to what you really need to enter into. So for all of us, there is a challenge that says if you're not prepared to pull something down, you won't be able to build something up. If you're not prepared to get rid of the old, you can't enter into the new. And if you try to do it, you will fail every time. I was reading, um, I was reading um, just this week, Jesus' classic words, I mean just classic, that no man puts new wine into an old wineskin. Because if he does, the skin will burst and the wine will spill out and both the wine and the skin will be lost. Words of wisdom that have got nothing to do with the wine trade, but got everything to do with humanity and belief and construct that says you can't put new wine in an old wineskin. They were trying to push Jesus into the old wineskin of Jewish religion, and it doesn't work. It will burst both. You lose Jesus and you lose your religion as well. You have to say we're saying goodbye to the flesh and blood interpretation of God, the Bible, and Jesus, so that we can get a revelation, and then we're putting new wine into new wineskins. That's why the church exploded and was brilliant for about 200 years. Well, maybe 140. 150 if we're being generous. And, uh, and then what we're trying to do is, for example, just a very simple thing. All of a sudden we have popping up bishops. And the bishops wear robes and mitres. Where's that come from? It comes from flesh and blood concepts of the priesthood. So now we say, ah, if we have bishops who wear robes and mitres, they're like priests. And we read about priests in the Old Covenant. So therefore, may, they must be the people who represent us before God and they are the ones who have the revelation we need to understand. So now we become subservient. So now the bishops organise us into a structural institution. And all kinds of things begin to happen then over the next 150 years. We go from meeting as groups to sitting in rows. We go from sharing because of impartation to now instructing because we are gurus so now the bishops tell us what to do the bishops tell us what to think and so from that 150 we we start to see historically the slide until particularly then when you get into the 300s and Constantine um, making Christianity empirical by absorbing it into Rome's structure of government and then, of course, um, Augustine, who, who was a Platonist in his training, beginning to speak as a major voice into the, into the Western church. And, of course, what do we get? Platonistic ideas. Ideas of the soul 
that are not biblical, ideas of heaven that are not biblical, ideas of hell that are not really, well, I should say God-breathed would be a better term, that are not God-breathed. And so we begin to see the emergence of what we have now struggled with, which begins to erect something that still looks like the first tabernacle. It still awfully looks like that thing in the desert where you couldn't come in, you had to have somebody come in for you, you were always unworthy, they had to keep being sacrifices, you had to keep all of these rules, and you needed a guru, a representative, because you yourself could not approach the living God because he's way too holy and you're way too much rubbish. We have to pull that tabernacle down once and for all. Because when that goes, we have the possibility of entering the most holy place. The most holy place was simply an allegory or a picture of of the very centre, the very core of God's existence. I don't believe it's a place in a church or a place in a temple or a cathedral. It's actually a place on the inside of you. And that's why, that's why, before we got to that point, the writers of the New Testament were wrestling with, but you are the temple. They were trying to get through to people. When you pull this down, you realise that is not it. You are it. The holy place is not somewhere else. The holy place is in the centre of you. And you can enter into that holy place in the centre of you where God dwells so that there can be the, the, the oneness of the one who never left you anyway in the first place which I think is good news. That's why the real gospel actually is good news. (laughs) So one more little story to bring this home. Uh, Luke chapter 24. I'll I'll read you a bunch of verses here and then just a few comments on, on what we've read. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus. This is after, this is after the crucifixion which was seven miles from Jerusalem. They walked a long way in those days. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. This is, this is the, the Passion Week, okay? And so it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Now, if you come from the old tabernacle still standing... You've got God stop them from recognising Jesus. Well, why would he do that? Why the heck would he do that when he's gone to all the trouble of the word being made flesh and dwelling among us to show us the glory of the Father? It would make more sense to say that the reason their eyes were restrained is not because of anything God was doing, but because of where they were in their journey. Why? Because they're still trying by flesh and blood to get a revelation that you can't get from flesh and blood. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk in the sad? Then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God. See, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. They're still living in a flesh and blood understanding because they've not been able to ask the que- answer the question, but who is he to you? Who am I to you? 
<coughs> so, <coughs> mighty in word and deed before God and the people, <coughs> and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. <coughs> See, a construct that was flesh and blood. Indeed, besides all of this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. There's the doubt. And he said to them, all foolish ones, that's nice, isn't it? You idiots, basically, is modern translation. Slow of heart to believe in all the things the prophets have spoken. He's saying, Dumbos, hasn't there been enough, enough God-breathed for you to catch on yet? And the truth is there's lots of God-breathed, but lots of people have not caught on yet. All that the prophets have spoken ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter his glory. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets... He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, which is what I call the, the golden thread in all of the nonsense that's in there from, you know, hierarchical thinking and, and jealousy and, and tribal conflict. In there's this wonderful golden thread that explains to us really the one that Simon got a revelation of. Verse 28, Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent, and he went in to stay with them. Here's the great problem of all religion, and particularly Christian belief, that it makes this statement, then he drew near the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further. Now, in terms of looking on the map, there was nowhere particular, specifically, that you would need to go beyond this road to Emmaus. So, whatever Jesus was talking about, somehow it wasn't necessarily something out there as it was something in here. He would have gone further. He wanted to show them more. He wanted to let them see something beyond. He wanted them to understand that maybe the Son of Man does something more about this that you can grab a hold of if you get the right revelation. But it says, but they constrained him saying, stay with us. It's toward evening. The day is far spent. So he graciously, just like just like with Peter, he didn't manipulate them into what he would have liked them to believe. He'll stop with you where you want to stop. And so in essence, really, in our understanding of who Jesus is to us, the church has hardly moved in the last 500 years since Martin Luther's Reformation. And we're still talking about the Jolly Reformation. And there's a whole group of theology called Reformed Theology. It's like, for crying out loud, that's 500 years ago. And we're always being pushed into this and that and the other and and that move of God and this. And really what it is, it's the fact we won't let the one who is the very revelation of God himself take us further 
than we are comfortable to go. And so our church has become that village. Our church has become that home. This is where we stay. This is where we sleep. It's getting a little bit late. Why do we need to go any further? And yet the question is, if they'd have said, yeah, let's do that, it makes you wonder how this story would have read, wouldn't it? But how this story then pans out was, it says, now it came to pass in verse 30, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Wow, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scripture to us? They knew something was going on, but they didn't have the courage to take it beyond the sense that something was going on and say, what is it that's making us feel this way? We have committed ourselves at the rock and in queue to say, what is it that's making us feel what we feel? We've had some bad heartburn and not been quite sure what's causing the heartburn. And it's felt sometimes like it might be a heart attack and probably we're going to die. But what they had was a heartburn. Something wasn't digesting. Something was going on because it was trying to teach them something about getting stuck about, about the constructs of God, their understanding of where they think Jesus fit, that they needed to leave behind because the question was being asked, but who am I to you? Flesh and blood has not revealed this. Flesh and blood can't reveal this. But my Father which is in heaven. It was a revelation to Peter. The veil had been lifted off. And now he's not seeing God through a flesh and blood pagan concept. Now he is seeing God in the reality of Jesus and it breaks every chain of religion in his life. So now he can begin a journey where God can do all kinds of things in him like this Jew when he thought, I'm not going to eat anything unclean and God gives him a sheep with all kinds of unclean animals in and he says, I can't eat that. And God says, you rise and eat because what I have called clean, don't you? you say is impure anymore his life is being changed because the veil has been lifted and he's not seeing Jesus anymore through the construct of flesh and blood so here's my final three things Jesus never tells them who he is and that fascinating you would think he'd begin hey guys I'm Jesus look hey he doesn't tell them who he is why? Because he wants them to find out. We've spent far too much time trying to impose upon the world around us an image of Jesus that he wants them to find for themselves. But because we have tied it up in the, in the knot of the string of our religious thinking to have to verify conclusions that we have because some flesh and blood thinking about God, we have been trying to do something we were never meant to do because people were meant to get a revelation that comes from the Father and the truth is they will if you'll be who you're supposed to be. But Jesus never tells them who he is. He engages them in a mode of questioning and searching. 
So he didn't say, I've come to answer your questions. He really said, I've come to question your answers. And I think the greatest, if we're going to talk about evangelism, it's when God turns up not to answer people's questions, but to question their answers. Because when our answers are questioned, it means we have to reevaluate what it was that brought us to that conclusion, but we can't do it as a war opposing somebody who's trying to impose upon us what they want us to think, so we have to think for ourselves, and that means we have to release things as we do that. And here's the last one, I love this. He disappears from their sight before they can take a photograph of him. Why, when they suddenly see who he is, does he disappear? Because he doesn't want you to take a photograph of the Jesus you see when you get a revelation. Because you'll never move on from that moment. You'll only ever see Jesus in that form and in that way. And I was raised where we gave testimony. I thank the Lord 30 years ago. I realised that I was a sinner and... And, and I gave my heart to Jesus and I accepted Jesus and I was saved. It's, it's very true, but the problem is we took a photograph in that moment. And that's the Jesus now. And we pull our little photograph out. This is who Jesus is to me. Jesus is not a photograph that you pull out from some encounter that you had in history. Jesus is alive, real, in the flesh now, and he disappears when you've had the revelation. Now, I find that frustrating because when I get a revelation that he is the, the, the Christ, the son of the living God, and I see him in a new way, it's like he disappears real quick. And I think, heck, you know, take me a while to get to this point and now they've gone. But I understand why. Because we must not take a photographic image of a Jesus that we then want to put in a frame over the mantelpiece to say, this is Jesus. You cannot point to a picture and say, this is Jesus. He is the Word made flesh. He is incarnate. He is the living God made flesh who's on the move. Remember, Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move. So we have to realise that we have been freed to let Jesus continue to become the Christ, the Son of the living God, that flesh and blood hasn't revealed to us, but the Father which is in heaven. So our lives has to be a constant movement, not of a one time, but of a continual revelation happening as life teaches us that you are the Christ the son of the living God. And that Jesus then moves with us in our life. He moves with culture. He moves with time. He moves with generations and never becomes irrelevant in the slightest because when you see him, he disappears so you can't take that picture. So how do I explain Jesus to you? Well, that would be me saying, I saw Jesus and he looks like this. That's why he said, let's just start from son of man, okay? Let's start from ordinary. Let's start from human. And then I will be who you see me to be when you stop looking at me through the eyes of flesh and blood. Because when you stop doing that, 
You will have a revelation that says, I know who you are. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God, who is with us always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Awesome. Have you got anything you want to add, Mrs. C? All right, we've got a few minutes if you've got anything you want to in the magic notebook. Have a picture of Jesus. No, I'm not going to talk for very long. I'm just so glad that I've mentioned that at the end about not taking a photograph. Um, I had it in a, just a totally different way that when it says and he disappeared and he vanished, it was because. He disappeared in the form that they suddenly realised that he was Jesus and they couldn't capture that, like you said, of the, the photograph to make an idol of him and so he disappeared. So I was so glad that uh, you said that. Now, just add one more thing which will just give you something to think about. Last week there was a question on the table and it was why did something that was predominantly Jewish start then become Gentile. And uh, it was interesting, the sort of answers that were coming round the table. Um, but it was all because of this fact that we've been talking about tonight. And I, maybe as I ought to bring it in um, a, a ministry sometime, but just to put this into your mind, that you see the whole issue of the Messiah to the Jews, he had to be a man. He had to be a man. He wasn't going to be a God. So the Jews accepted Jesus potentially as he could be the Messiah. But when it was muted that he was God incarnate, then on that basis he couldn't be their Messiah because Messiah wasn't going to be a God. Now I know that you might think that's weird, but this is why it ultimately became a Gentile uh, um, Christianity and the Jews sort of took on their own thing again because once they decided um, and you know we won't go into the whole history of it that Jesus was the son of God and he was made that in the context of history then the Jews said that just can't be the case because if he's our Messiah he has to be uh, a man now then we have the the, the issue that the Gentiles, the reason why that wasn't a problem to the Gentiles uh, and the, the reason why it became more of a Gentile thing, because we were so influenced, and I've been talking about all the influences on Christianity, by so much Greek influence, by Roman influence, that to make a distinction between human and divine wasn't a problem. So... God could be a human, and a human could be God. That was no big deal. So the Gentiles thought, we don't really need to have a distinction like this. So it ran rampant because they were quite satisfied to accept the term of Jesus being God. But the Jews never could. And in fact, actually, it was exactly the same with the Muslims. They could never do that because they wouldn't accept that you could have human and God in the same being. Now, just a little bit more to add, which, which is quite interesting. How do you think we came up with the whole idea of the Trinity? It's in order to try to get round these differing 
uh, aspects of God, which one was human, one was spirit, the Holy Spirit, the other was God himself. And in their head, you can't have all these different things. So what they did was separate it into these groups, which again, to the Jewish people, that just was not acceptable. And that's why they went back to very much God being separate and humans being separate. And there has to be this, like we've been talking about tonight, this uh, way of connecting with God rather than there being this uh, person who was opening the way up and opening the door for it to be revealed. Now, I don't know whether that helps you, but it just shows you how the layers of uh, influences that have come uh, on history um, as a shaping it in a particular way, and it's very, very interesting. And, and I just want to just, uh, well, there's so much I could say, and I'm, I, don't, I think Anne's done an amazing job. It's been absolutely brilliant. So just going back to the little bit I just said there. So for instance, someone could possess as a human God's power and do miracles in God's power because that's how God was showing his activity in the earth. But to actually say it was God was just not allowed. So you see the difference? So a human being could be basically having the power of God within them, but that didn't mean they were God. Does that make, that make sense? So, okay. Just one more thing I wanted to say, and if I can find my page, wherever it is, um, and then I'll shut up. Oh, heck. Where was it? Oh, it's here. Right. I believe that when the scripture says that, you know, um, that the Holy Spirit will come and he will be our comforter because, you know, Jesus had, had uh, resurrected and had gone away. And in order that we might be led into truth. Now, I might not be quoting that scripture correctly and we can always put it up on the screen at some point. But the whole idea is something was coming that was going to be available to everybody in order to lead into truth. And it just touched my heart this last week that what really has been happening to me, I am 60 years old now and I was brought up in a particular flesh and blood understanding. But in 2003, and possibly a little bit before, because questions were starting to be, be asked, but in 2003, there was a point where I really believed that, believed that the Holy Spirit uh, began opening my eyes to a greater truth. And I believe that that is the same that's going on in the world, all over the world. People are asking the same questions you know, that we've been asking tonight, who do you say that I am? And that is what the Holy Spirit has been doing to leaders to understand the different concept of, of Father and in order that we might be set free into this greater understanding of our oneness uh, in spirituality rather than in dead religion. So that would be just my little bit of uh, adding to it. And No, I'm going to stop. But, I mean, I, I have got some things that... Uh, um, it's really interesting that the story of the road to Emmaus... I love history and I love to read and I read loads. Is actually told exactly the same in the history books. And it's actually about the guy who 
Rome was founded on, Romulus. Because you know Rome was founded on a man called Romulus. You'll know Sarah. But did you know that Romulus was killed and he rose again from the dead? Oh, see, there's lots of story. Yeah, allegedly, but there's lots of stories, you see. They're very similar. And I can point you to where the story of the road to Emmaus is written in another history book where it is Romulus that has risen from the dead and he is walking with some of his disciples, but they're not walking away from Jerusalem where this story, because Emmaus, if you think about it, Jerusalem is the, the big city where it's all happening, the power base. Emmaus is this little town just nowhere. And so the story is Jesus walking with his disciples, revealing himself there. But the story of Romulus is that he is walking from an obscure town back to Rome, and he's encouraging his uh, disciples as such to go back and rally the troops because what has happened to him means death and they're going to absolutely slaughter all these people. Now you might say, what's that all about? You've got a beautiful picture of, and I'm not saying that this story is not true, I'm not at all, but what I'm saying that there are ways of, of speaking stories that people of the day understood but the thing about it was, was it was opposite. It was power pulling away to the, to the powerless. Whereas in the other story, it's going the other way back. And the, the words are, rally the troops and don't leave anybody standing. Slaughter everybody. Whereas what you have with the story here is go back and tell them that I have risen and, and you get everybody together because there's a wonderful thing happening. And it was the fact that it was the kingdom being established, not one of power, military power, where, and you see, that's the other issue of, of um, the whole point of the Messiah. They, the Jewish people wanted the Messiah, of course, to rise up against the Romans. And that's not what Jesus came to do. So you can imagine why he would be rejected uh, on behalf. But isn't it interesting, you've got these, these stories that uh, sort of are a parallel, but what is being used to say, no, they might have that story there, but what we're gonna do is turn it to say, this is what we're going to be, and it's gonna be a very different motive and a very different end. So anyway, there you go. That's my little bit, my little bit. We're done, oh. He says, we're done. Hope you've enjoyed. I've loved what I'm sat to say. I thought it was really, really, really great. And um, I, I might, if it's, if it's all right, I might just bring some more at another time, if that's okay. Right. Thank you.